Hi, I'm Jeff Scoop, and this is Beyond Barriers with my co-host, Acacia Dietz, and our special guest this evening is T.M. Garrett. Welcome to the show, T.M. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Uh, uh, T.M., if you'd like to get started, <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what it's like to be a former and what's important going forward and, and uh, things like that. Well, you're saying something very interesting. What's important as a former? And, and this is something that I learned in the past years is not, a, not an easy thing to answer because there's certain guidelines of organizations worldwide that work together and that define when is a former a former. Um, because there's no timeline that dictates you Okay, now you're out, now you have to do this, now you have to do this, now you have to do this. Even though there are a couple of principles and ethical principles that you must fulfill to be a former. Um, if you don't accept democracy in general, if you, or if, you, if, you, if you are still believing in a totalitarian state, for example, or if you're still clinging to hate, if you're still... Uh, think you're superior to minorities and all these things that you did in the movement, of course, uh, then there's a problem with classifying somebody as a former, uh, as a reformed racist, white supremacist, Nazi leader, whatever they were, or even jihadist or wherever they came from. But as long as these standard principles are fulfilled, I, I personally classify the person as a former. Um, but there's still different stages, of course, a former has to go through. In my case, I left the movement in 2002. That's a long time ago. Um, at that time, I was over the European KKK, or at least one of the European KKK groups. And I, I left it, and I, I remember I retired, because you know that's a safe thing to do. You don't have to denounce your ideology at that point. You don't make yourself a traitor and all these things. But um, there were, in the following time, couple months, were incidents that helped me looking at the pastime in the movement and made me really think. And that was especially when I got together with minorities and received compassion, which is very important, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I guess. Um, but it took me 10 years to, to be, no, even longer, to be ready to talk about it. Because it doesn't matter which country you're from. In that case, it was, uh, I'm originally from Germany. And uh, most of my activities until 1998 was only in Europe. Um, then from 1998 to 2002, it was also a lot here in the US and Europe. Actually worldwide through the internet, traveling and everything. Um, but um, it, it's... Uh, when, when, when you get out and have to leave that behind, it, it just takes a while to, to, to reflect. And again, this is not easy, especially when you, if you have spent a long, long time in that movement. And again, what I wanted to say is for 10 years, I didn't talk about my time in the movement because there was a fear of rejection. And also shame, you know, shame is toxic, but it was there. I felt guilty. I felt ashamed for what I did in the movement, for the people that I recruited, for other acts that we committed, and so on. And, uh, 
this is hard to deal with. And uh, in my case, it was uh, especially hard. I got outed by the media overseas really brutally. I was all over the national news and everything. And if you're not in charge of your coming out, if you're not controlling the narrative, that's not a good thing. So for three years, I was fighting really hard to prove, yes, I'm out for 10 years already. I just didn't talk about it. And I did, I wasn't active in it. I just swept it under the carpet and lived a normal life. And I wasn't racist anymore. I was not Islamophobe anymore. I was not anti-Semite anymore. So if you are a former and you get out, of course, there's these basic principles, uh, ethic principles that, that you need to follow, need to fulfill to count as a former. Um, somebody who's still clinging to hate or whatever, it is hard to say this is a former. Um, but there's no timeline that says, okay, after a month, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Or there's not even a guideline that dictates you that you have to pick a certain political direction. And that's always what I say. If you, When you're in a hate group, when you're in the movement, where you don't have a choice is, well, that you have to hate. It is what it is. You, I know what it is. You call it, no, it's, it's love for own people and all that crap, you know? But at the end, you always hate somebody for whatever reason. The only freedom you have in the movement is how you hate and how you justify that hate. You have all freedom in the world how to justify it and how you hate, as long as you fit in that category. The, the nice thing when you get out of the movement is that you don't hate at all anymore. The you don't have to substitute your hate, not even for a political enemy or whatever. You don't have to have enemies anymore. You know what I mean? If we talk about the compassion that, that changed us, the unconditional love that changed us, this is what we need to practice every day in our lives. And this is just very important. And this, this is also something we have to practice when we talk to other formers, somebody who wants to get out. If you get approached by somebody because you wear high profile, you know? So people know who you wear. They see what you do now. They, oh, Jeff is out now. I remember him from back then. Let's talk to him. Then uh, we have to fulfill certain standards to, to um, work with these people and don't push them in any direction. Um, of course, we have to help them that they push themselves to that acceptance, to the tolerance, um, to leave that hatred behind. But um, I think it that's, is, that's uh, a really important uh, thing, thing that you point out too there is that there's not a, a lot of times when people are getting out, one of the most common things that, that uh, they've, they've said to me is, is they'll ask, are you a communist? Are you Antifa? Are you this or that, you know, and, and they, and I know I thought the same way when I was in the movement, mm -hmm. um, we look at it from the outside looking in and you think that there's a certain, a way that you're supposed to, you're, you're supposed to think a certain way, or you have to become the opposite and things like that. So I think it's really important. I'm really glad that you touched on that because I think it's incredibly important for the viewers and for the listeners out there that they understand, you know, you don't have to, you know, go from the far right to the far left. And, and in fact, 
I think if you're going from the extreme version of the far right to the extreme far left, Antifa, for example, and you're you, you're just switching extremism. You're not really you're not uh, de-radicalized, in my opinion. Um, I understand what okay. you're saying, and I know, I know formers that count themselves further left, some they stand further right. Um, I think talking about this is when it always comes to politics, talking about um, topics like Antifa or many have struggled with the terms Black Lives Matter, for example, because you have to differ between a fact, a motto, a movement and an organization. These are three totally different things. And the same I see it with Antifa because it's, it's a decentralized movement. There's no leadership. It's just people that say, oh, I'm Antifa, I'm going there and I'm doing this. And a lot of people are just pushed in that uh, direction. Um, so uh, our perception today, that uh, what a, a lot of people have the perception of Antifa, that's a violent mob, period. And this is something we have to work with. What people, it's like um, misleading terms like defunding the police. That's my classic example of bad marketing and misleading terminology. Because I fell for it too. I mean, I read it the first time, mis um, defunding the police. I had a lengthy Facebook post saying, this is stupid. It will lead to privatized police that will end up like um, privatized uh, Prisons, it will lead to more brutality instead of less. Until I really understood what it means, it doesn't mean we have to get rid of police and stuff like that. But the, how it's coined and the term is super misleading. And I, what I personally don't understand is why people keep using these terms when they're so misleading. And some people will not understand because it is self-describing, actually, right? Defunding. And people have that with Antifa. All these violent mobs are classified, if you look in the media, as uh, Antifa or Black Lives Matter, when they mean uh, the violent mob and, and part of that organization, you know what I mean? So that makes it very difficult to, do, to deal with terms. And I, I started to not use any of these terms at all anymore because of that. Well, it, it goes back to like when we were in the movement, you know, and we use this broad brush. And I, I have to I have to correct myself sometimes on this, too, because we we see this broad brush. Like when someone says, well, the movement is all this and we do the same with the left. And, and I'm glad you pointed that out, too, because, you know, when we talk about Antifa, Black Lives Matter, all these different things or defunding the police, a lot of people will paint that with a broad brush and it's not always that way and and uh it's it's it goes the same with the movement yes there's very violent aspects of the movement in certain groups and certain individuals and then there's ones that are are, are more mild you know so it, it goes the same way with the, with the left so I, I think it is important to break that down uh, it is it is important um so what what is if you, if you look at this let's say farmers world okay um, because there's a certain former, a movement of former white supremacists, former neo-Nazis or whatever you want to classify it. And it is, it is really hard sometimes to communicate when it comes to politics because people share different politi political aspects or opinions. And that is fine. Um, and very often it doesn't matter if you keep those to yourself. And in my opinion, this is the most professional thing you can do. Um, because it's your opinion. Uh, look, me and my wife, we don't share everything. Uh, the same, you know, we don't share all 
on the same political opinions. We are pretty much on the same wavelength, but it's not 100%. But this is something between me and her. We're talking, we don't put that on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And here, especially when you deal with people who want to leave the movement, it's, it's tricky because it can be misunderstood. Um, it should not play a role. Yet it has to play a role if you stand too far right. That is important because it needs to be called out the same when it comes to extremes. And I do that. If I see something, a former who posts something or had something on Twitter, and I don't care who it is, if it's high profile, and I also don't care if when you put something on there, and we had that before, that I see something, and I think that's critical, especially as a former. You know, I have picked up the phone and called you and said, hey, Jeff, I don't think that's a good idea to put it on there for several reasons. Because um, how people look at you as a former and, and um, some people see you one-sided, for example. And this is just, just one example. Um, this can happen to any former who's getting out. And uh, that is just the advice I'm giving. Before people do that, before people put these things out, work with somebody who's got the experience and, and reflect. Because this is very, very important that this happens. Because um, there's people looking at the former's movement, other formers, but media, uh, from the left, from the right, everybody. And they're judging. They're judging a former by what he does, what he puts on Facebook. So I've been judged by formers who were further right than I, that I'm a commie, and that I'm the reason why somebody would go back because I posted something. And that's my personal opinion that uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. This is my personal opinion. I have many friends who, who are avid supporters, and this is okay. We're friends. We talk about these things. But um, so I've been judged. So somebody who's further on the right puts something online and a former who's further on the left will judge the same. So therefore, if somebody, and I learned it the hard way, I'm working with formers. Um, I help them with advice. Um, and therefore, it's always tricky if you put anything political out there. And this is why I try to avoid that on social media. Sometimes I, re I retweet something to make a statement, but when it really comes to, to partisan politics, um, it's very, very tricky. Or calling out the right, calling out the left, calling out a certain group. I'm very, very careful. And it, it can be looked at as the wrong way. Yeah, I've, I've had that too, where I, I try to be with the Beyond Barriers organization. We we try to be as nonpartisan as possible and, and every in the different individuals, everybody that's part of it, some are more right leaning, some are center, some are more left leaning. It, it all really depends. But um, I, I hear what you're saying a hundred percent. And I think it's, it's really incredibly important because one of the things um, where a lot of the people that are leaving or that are on the fence about leaving have said to me is, is um, they do watch all of us, you know, all of us that are that are part of the former sphere or whatever you want to call it, this former's movement, and they'll they'll look at some of the people that are really far to the left, and they'll say, you know, hey, as from coming out of the movement, we battled with these people, you know, we disagreed with them, and uh, they have a really hard time. They 
I've had so, you know, and we don't name people on this program, you know, but I've had people say, I won't talk to so-and-so because they're too far on the left. You know, I've heard that a lot, you know, and that's why I think it's so incredibly important that, you know, of course we can all have our personal opinions as long as they're not too radical. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's when you're doing this kind of work and you're trying to help others get out, if you're perceived as being way on the one on the opposite extreme, a lot of people won't, won't reach out. But I think that's why, you know, in, in one way, looking at the positives, because there's so, you know, different formers that are out there, some are uh, center, some are a little bit right, some are a little mm-hmm. bit left, you know, it, there's different ways of approaching people and there's different uh, people that can reach out uh, for different people, you know, but uh, being nonpartisan, I think is as a whole, at least organizational wise, is really important. So, Jeff, what, what you were saying that uh, people who are on the edge in the movement that think about leaving, and that happens more often than people think or want to admit. I mean, you've been in the movement for 25 years. I was in the movement for about 15. These moments come often, but you have so, many, so much influence in the movement that puts you back on track, and you have nobody to talk on the outside because, you know, the outside hates you. Period. Um, now, I, I, I do understand that, let's say, there's somebody who's on the edge and he looks at the former's work, okay, because we're visible. It ha- it's never been that visible as it's now. Super visible, and that's a good thing. But they also see that there's a certain, there's different facets of former's. And they, they pick, of course, okay, I would rather talk to this person than that because the person is too far left or maybe wants to me to convince me to become Antifa or become a communist or whatever. Uh, my take on this is, and this is the nice thing when you leave the movement. Yes, you can become a communist. Yes, you can, you can become whatever. You can marry a black woman. You can become a Jew. You know what I mean? Convert to Judaism or whatever. But the nice thing is you don't have to. Right. Nobody will judge you for it. If you do or if you don't, because this is your personal thing, important is you left that crap behind you. This is the most important part. You stand for these ethical um, reasons, the, these ethical basics that we have. And this was what, what, what unites everybody, actually. This is, like, if you're religious, for example, like the Ten Commandments, or what Jesus said, or what Muhammad said, or Buddha said, said, hey, love your neighbor as you love yourself. To say, frankly, just don't be an asshole, no matter how your neighbor looks like, praise, or today, even no matter how they vote for, and this is a very important part, and I say it over and over, and this, for the most part, the most, the strongest thing, and the last thing I say, no matter how they vote for. Exactly. This is important. Look, my neighbors, they said politically completely different from where I am. At least my white neighbors. Okay, I, I live in a predominantly black area, but I have two white neighbors, and I know where they stand. They know where I stand. But guess what? It's not a problem. I needed help yesterday. The one neighbor came with a tractor and helped because it just doesn't matter. It's their personal opinion. This is my personal opinion, and this is what it should be as a former as well. Where especially if you're the one who's giving the guidance, it should be the personal opinion. 
and say, okay, I don't care if you get out and you already lead further left or you don't. There's a certain direction you should go. Yes, leave that hatred behind. Show compassion to literally anybody. Even if you're standing on the right, even for the Democrats, if you're standing more on the left, even to the conservatives. It's just what we do. We can preach compassion and say, it's compassion that has changed us. And then we're going to show it to the rest of the world and especially to other formers that maybe aren't even ready yet. Well, it takes okay. well, I mean, I'm really glad you said that because that, that, that the way you explained it is, is sums it up so well. And it's so important that anyone that's out there listening and that's, that's tuning in understands that, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a great example because you remember when we were in the movement, we didn't have that kind of compassion or that kind of tolerance if you were not a national socialist. That's not true. That's not true. We had the compassion, but it was selective compassion. For our we own. Right, right. For right. right, exactly. But now... And this you know, is the difference. It shouldn't be selective compassion. Right. Because as long as right. you're using selective compassion, then you still have a problem with yourself. Then it's still less anger involved, less hate involved. You have to work on that. That compassion has to be universal. It's called unconditional love. Yes, that yeah. includes. Yes, that also includes the guy in the KKK wrote the KKK hood. Yes, I love everybody as a human being, despite their shitty ideology. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. But I would sit down with anybody and talk and say, okay, what's going on in your life? I respect you as a human being, as a person. I don't respect what you're standing for, but it's your right to, to think that. But it's that is not okay. That's the um, biggest thing, too, because, like, we we so many times forget that this is a human thing. This isn't just about politics. This isn't just – I might completely despise what somebody believes and what they espouse, but that doesn't mean that I have to despise them as a human being. And a lot of times we forget that, you know – Despite, like you said, you know, whoever you vote for, you might have completely opposite ends of the spectrum, ideologically, politically, but you can still respect that person as a human being. And that's Absolutely. one of the things that people forget, especially right now with how crazy everything is, you know, politically, socially, all of that is that, you know, we need to come back together and realize that we are all human. And we all, you know, need compassion and empathy. That doesn't mean, right. compassion and empathy doesn't mean that you approve or that you sympathize with that belief system or those ideas and the ideology and everything. It simply right. means you that- You can call them out in my opinion. And this, oh, yeah. this is where people have to differ, calling out. What do you call out? What do you want to go away? And I had this discussion. I do a lot of public speaking, lecturing. And I was talking, I had actually a, a real dispute with somebody in the audience when I told them, look, I do understand when the client comes to town, they hold a rally. What's your first instinct? You organize a counter rally, you hold up signs, KKK, go away, right? Now the thing is, okay, go away. And, and it, was, it was in Chattanooga. And they said, to Knoxville, where they came from? I said, look, but you're sending people away, right? Do you want to go, to, do you want people to go away? Or do you want the ideologies to go away? And these are two different things that we need to understand. Of course, when a hate group comes to town, this is not the time where you pick your battle because that's Charlottesville. We've been there. 
it doesn't work. We know that. And Jeff, I believe you told the story with the rally in Tupelo, where the, where the citizens of Tupelo were smart, they just stayed at home, right? Yeah. And one of your members said, why can't it be like in Pittsburgh last year and we smashed chairs and other people's heads, right? Yeah. But there was nobody there. So this is what I said. You shouldn't leave it unchecked when they come to town, but you can react differently. Pick your battles wisely. You don't have to be Daryl Davis and go to a clan rally. You can, but that's Daryl Davis who does it. Daryl's right? an expert at that, yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. So well, you know, it's, it's the really good. person shouldn't do things like that. When the clan comes to town, don't go there. You will lose that battle because they want you to go there. They want you to react that way. So don't go there. But it has to be unchecked. It, it can't be unchecked. Um, you can, this is what I'm saying. Don't call out people or don't expose people, but expose ideologies. Call out right. ideologies. And this is a big, big difference. And uh, again, when you talk about formers, it's, it's especially critical. And if I may use you and me as an example, because this is a firsthand experience I had on my hand, uh, on my end, and I saw it on your end, uh, what can happen or when a former stands further right and another former stands further left. Because that's what we do. Uh, you stand further right than I, and I stand further left than you. And I put certain things on Facebook, I said that before, and I got called out by a former for being too far left and it scares other formers away that, or people that want to get out of the movement. While on, on your end, you put stuff uh, on Twitter sometimes where a former from the left could say, uh, is he really out? And both sides, I think, have a point um, because you, it, you always have to see a former critical, especially if a former is out new and well all those hate groups were on the extreme right they were not on the extreme left it's just a fact and if somebody is still or is um more right-leaning and puts stuff out and is um like in your case one and a half years now right yeah how long are you out now one and a half years one and a half years so that is for a former who spent 25 years <laughs> in a hate group and 20 years of that as the leader, that is not a long time. And in my case, I was 15 years in there. Okay, I'm out long, but now in my profession as a, or, or in my activity, helping people getting out and advising, it's still not long what I do, you know? So of course, people always will look at a form, oh, he's out fresh, how does he behave? What? points in a direction that he's still might leaning in that direction. And the further right it goes, the more you're in danger that it's proof, oh, he's not really out. He's probably still running the NSM in the background. You know what I mean? And I know you heard these things. Well, and I mean, a lot of that comes from because, I mean, me as a man, I, I'll say it to this day, I don't care for communism. I really don't. I have an issue with it. But I do have friends that are communists. I have a couple friends that are communists, which would have been unheard of when I was in the movement, but these are people that I know now and, and I don't like their ideology I, as, a, as a person, but I like them as people and I, and, I, and I see them as human beings. I don't look, look beyond that. But you know, I mean, there's, there's always gonna be people, I think you could be out 30 years and there's still gonna be people that'll say, oh, that person's a Nazi, you know, or that person's this or that. You know as well as I do. I mean, once once you leave 
you know, anybody can leave and retire and that's one thing. And, you know, they could slide back into the movement or things like that. But once you leave and you've denounced the movement, you spoke out against racism and hate, there's no going back. So, I mean, uh, you know, maybe from people from the outside looking in, don't quite, it doesn't quite uh, resonate because they don't understand it. But anybody that's been in the movement, uh, you know, they know there's no going back. Oh, I, I do. I know that. Um, this is, but I just wanted to put it in a direction that people understand what working with farmers means. And this means that when people get out, they bring a, they bring a story with them. And there's two stories that they bring. The one story is, this is the story of me, how I got in the movement and how I was in the movement. And there's also the story, okay, how did I get out? Um, it, is, it is to a certain extent important how you got out, but only to a certain extent. That's my opinion. Um, some are pushed out or we talked about that. You, you and I, we did something similar when we got out. First, it was just retiring. We didn't wake up one morning and say, man, this is crap. This is not what I wanted to do anymore. It's so, you know, it was retiring without denouncing our ideology. I did the same thing. And then in the months past that, it was development. You know, I had to deal with issues, man. And when I got out, I was still the biggest Islamophobe ever. You know, I thought my landlord wanted to kill me, you know? Right. And, and I just learned, okay, this is just not true. The more people I met that were part of these minorities that I used to hate, the more I understood, well, if I give them a chance and I don't label them, then I can find out they're just people, you know, they eat the same stuff. Okay, they sometimes eat falafel, you know, if they're Muslims or Arabs. But no, they also eat chicken and fries, just like I do, you know. And then you meet black people, they all eat chicken and fries. And then you, then you meet Jews, and guess what? They eat chicken and fries. Okay, in this case, kosher. But you know what I mean. So it is those basic things, it's all the same. They're just people. And this is, okay, people with, uh, uh, they vote different, they pray different, they love different, um, they look different, they speak different, talk different, come from different countries, uh, different culture, and, and this is okay. And this is also a part that I think is very important to understand, this is okay, and where uh, I believe we had a personal talk uh, just recently where you said that to me that some farmers or some people who want to get out or just got out or on the edge, they see things that are happening now. This is exactly what I said in the movement. That's happening now. Yep. And that might be true to a certain extent. And I always say, I, I call it, when not, the regular society doesn't talk about it, it's usually called, it's what I call German angst. Uh, the Germans did that after the Holocaust and Nazi couldn't be right. Because Germany has its history, of course, with the Nazis and all the cost. So therefore, as long as you're not a Nazi, you're good. As long as you're anti-Nazi, I don't care what you do, but you're the cool guy, as long as you're anti-Nazi. And you had it a little bit similar here too, like the Klan said in the 80s, uh, in 50 years, certain cities in the US, white people will be the minority in those cities. And everybody who was left of the Klan, <clears throat> pretty much everybody, <laughs> said, oh, this is nonsense, this is hate-mongering, this is not true. The thing is, no, it was a fact, and I know how it was. I, 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 lead, uh, I led extremist groups. We always took facts, statistical facts, and used them for our agenda. 
And of course, this was a fact too. There was just a development that was their statistics, and the Klan used it to create fear. To create fear amongst white people, or you will be the minority, and you know, they will treat you know how it is. Anyway, but everybody said, no, that's not true. Now you look, we have 20, 2020. How many white people are there in Detroit where you are? <laughs> the whites are the minority here. But, okay, right. So I live, I live. I live 40 minutes outside of Memphis. White people are the minority. Now you could say, oh, the Klan was right. And guess what? Yeah, the Klan was right. White people will be the minority there in, in certain cities. What society and politics left and right have forgotten to point out or actually to admit, yes, the Klan is right, but it's not a bad thing if white people are the minority. What could happen? Do minorities maybe get treated wrong or something? You know? <laughs> so. If right. there's no it's, problem it's with being point. a minority, what's the problem? Yeah, right? it's like somebody, someone asked me, and I, I think it was a week or so ago, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was in an interview, but it was in a conversation regardless, and they said, um, is there anything from the movement that you still believe in? And I thought, wow, this is a, that was an interesting question. I said, well, in the movement, we didn't like pedophiles, but I think most people can get on board with that most of society doesn't like pedophiles either. So does right. that mean that the movement is right? Or does that mean, you know, most human beings can get on board with pedophiles are bad? You know, it was just a, it was an analogy. It's like, okay, so of course there was things just, just like you said about the, well, the Klan predicted that whites would be the minority in certain areas. Yeah, it was true. So, you know. Right, but you know, the movement always took things to the extreme too. While the regular American says, I don't like pedophiles. The clan made flyers. There, that's where they live. Let's put a bullet there. So you know what I mean. Right. To make it extreme. Right. And this, right. These are the differences. You know. Right. Um, and you have that with many other other things too. It's the same thing. They pick they pick the same fact. White people will be the minority. Oh my God! It's a bad thing. We have multicultural. It's a bad thing. We will have Muslims. It's a bad thing. They will take over. Well, in fact, do you know how many Muslims I know that want to take over this country? Zero. Yeah. Right. Do you know how many Jews I know that want to take over this country? And I know a lot of Jews. None. Zero. They're the most helping and loving people where we talked about it. The movement, when you needed help, nobody helped you. And when I had to move six months ago, who helped me? A black guy and a synagogue one who sent me money, right? Sent me money. They didn't want to take it from me as the white guy. No, they wanted to give it to me to help. Said, oh shit, you got nobody to help. Will 200 bucks help so you can hire somebody? I declined. I said, no, it's, it's already done. But these are just the things that you see afterwards, too. Man, the people I used to hate, and I said, the Jews are taking our money and they will use us, and the black people steal it, and, and you know, they're just lazy. Oh, they were the only people who helped genuinely with an open heart, really. And these are just things you learn too when you get out and when you give things a chance too as well. And this is why it's important too what I do when I work with farmers. You know, there's I say there's different steps when, when a farmer contacts me. And I have a lot that are also very right-leaning. I work with uh, about four farmers right now that are very far right. And sometimes put a couple of things online where I think, oh, <laughs> I, I just could, could bash them right now, you know, punch them, said, why, why? 
And I, I always have a talk with these people and, um, and just say, okay, if you have an opinion, especially as a former, you need to be careful, you know? But also, where is it coming from? Is there an underlying issue too as well? Um, but to help make those opinions go away that are still leftovers from the movement, from 20 years in the movement, for example, 15 years, 50 years, for example, what do we do with those leftovers? How do we deal with them? If we leave a former alone with those and the PTSD that they also have sometimes, um, they can't deal with that. At some point, it will boil up again. You will have trigger situations, and all of a sudden, the stereotypical thoughts come out again. You know, then it's not the dude who honks the horn at you. Then you spell out the N word. If this is not controlled, especially when you're out fresh, and this is why it's important that those people not just say, okay, I'm out, I don't hate black people anymore. That's the question. How many black people do you know? And I would say, do you know? That's not like that you had on the podcast, not you personally, just somebody on the podcast or or um, as a coworker or whatever it is, you know? So how many people do you really have as friends? And how many people have been in your house last year having dinner with you? And you always get the stunning answer, from almost all white people, zero. And from all black people, how many white friends did you have at your dinner table sharing soul food? Zero. And I had that somewhere else. I had the, like in the Jewish community, how many non-Jewish people did you have at all? None. Why? Well, we're a Jewish community. Oh, we're a white community. We're a black community. You know, we're a Christian community. All these answers. And these are barriers we have to break as well, especially with the former. And get them together with the minority. Have dinner with a black guy. And I always start, you know, my best friend, he's a former black gang member. He was with the Pyro Bloods. And now he's my best friend, you know? And he's one of the people, of course, he's more the buddy type. So somebody who's maybe been in prison with the uh, Aaron Brotherhood or war, um, New Aaron uh, um, Empire or whatever all these groups are. Of course, they get better along with a former gang member from the other side. It's a more buddy thing. But at some point, I put them together with an elderly black couple, you know, <laughs> eating soul food. Or maybe with a rabbi. First, with a reform rabbi, maybe, because that is more normal to them than an orthodox rabbi where everything is different, where they only pray in Hebrew and, you know, fill the fish and stuff like that, you know. These are things when you don't know. You think all Jews eat to fill the fish, right? And have funny locks. And, but this, this is when you come out of the movement. What do you think? Oh, yeah. When you come out of the movement, I mean, it's, it's a very Most white polarized. Think Most non-Jews think that too, you know? Right. And I had funny conversations with Jews about, with Jews about that, about you fill the fish and, and black hats and whatever. And, and uh, it's really, really funny because I'm not holding back. I'm, I'm talking about these things about stereotypes, about things we believed in. And even like 15 years later, I had no connection to the Jewish community. And then I joined a family and say, what the hell happened with kosher? You know, <laughs> what the hell happened with this? I, I thought this is like this. What, there's a, there's a kosher food pantry? Don't all Jews have money? You know, when you have all these things, and it's just astonishing. You're like, man, they're, they're actually just people, you know. Of course, you have bad apples everywhere, you know. Of course, you have a bad Jew, you have a bad Muslim, you have a bad white guy, you have a bad black guy, you have a bad Democrat, you have a bad Republican, you know. 
you have them everywhere. But these are just things that everybody needs to experience. And this is a very important part. Now we see where former stands, where I can bring them to there. And sometimes I do it on purpose too to trigger them a little bit. Okay, how much does it trigger? And no, I know, I, I, know you, I know you do that. I've, I've watched you do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if I, I remember when I took you to the synagogue the first time. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and, and I, I made a little game with it. And I said, I, are you wearing a kippah too? Nope. Yarmulk? Um, <laughs> because I wanted to see, how is this reaction? You know what I mean? And then we had another former there. And I asked him the same question, you know, to see how uncomfortable does a former feel when I, when I ask these questions? How much of these resentments are still there? And look, when I went to a synagogue and I wore the thing the first time, yeah, that felt really weird. And I thought, oh, 20 years ago, I would not have worn that. I would not have been here, you know, and all these things. But these are also to overcome your, your, your demons, you know, that you still have. And it becomes normal. You just realize, yeah, that's, that's just a hat, you know. And that's just how they pray. And it's not different from when a Christian prays or when a Muslim prays or in the food. Well, it's, yeah, you eat something different in New York than you eat in Memphis, you know. And even different Jewish movements eat slightly different stuff too. So, I mean, you just realize it's people. This is, I believe, important too. It's just people. Yeah. And this is where we have to show the compassion to people as people even if they do something that we don't agree with. And there's a lot of people out there that I don't, don't agree with. I, I, I don't like olives. I really, I despise them. And I don't understand how anybody can like olives, really. Seriously. Well, I could that's go- a, That's a prejudice that you got to let go of, brother. Yeah. got to let go so, of see, that I could go on a rampage against all people who like olives, you know? Right. But I don't. I mean, that's, that's your thing. And there's many things like that that I don't agree with, with, with other people, but it's their personal thing. If it crosses a certain barrier or a certain border, you know, if, if it's very borderline, then I will say something and then I also publicly criticize and say, okay, look, I don't think this is all right. And I, I did that with formers too, when they put something out in public and said, hey, I, this is not okay. And I, do, I don't let people down. I will still be there for them. But this is something that is very important when people go when sometimes back and forth or, or have flashbacks or fall in, in, in old thinking. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, like what, what we're talking about, like when we went to the synagogue and other, other people I know that have introduced them to Muslims, Jews, black people, things like that. We had, when we were in the movement, we had these biases and we painted all these groups of people with this broad brush and, and believed in a lot of cases that they were evil and this sort of thing. Bringing, bringing people together and getting people to, to see that these other individuals really no different than them you know sure there's some different customs or there's some different uh ideas on worship or, or things like that but really you know we're we're all the same in you know and so we have more in common than we do in differences and and um i think um you know like bringing a movement person to meet with a rabbi you know i, I think you know and and immersing them in that culture and i think this is something that we need to do from from uh, a grade school age going up is show people that look these different cultures make it fun you know 
these different cultures, these different religions, all these different things, whether it's, uh, you know, one week you study Africa, the different countries there and, and uh, go around the nation. Then you go to Europe then you go to Asia and, and just cover all these different things and make it. Um, I mean, personally, I, I mean, I think it would be fascinating and it would uh, help get rid of a lot of those biases that people have, you know. Right. I had an interesting experiment that did a couple of times already with uh, people in general, not only farmers, but people who hate the other political direction, you know, liberals who hate conservatives and vice versa. It works also with farmers. Great. I have done that before, too. And you put them together, have a great dinner and don't tell them where they, where they, where they stand politically. And they have a blast. And it's the greatest meeting ever. Nicest people ever. And you tell them, hey. How was it with the Liptards? Oh, how was it with the Trumpsters? You know? And those people are like, no, that person, no, that person will never vote for Dark Biden. Oh, no, that person will never vote for Trump, you know? Because the politics are left outside and all these biases people have against the left or against the right, um, it's not a target anymore because the target is gone, you know? All of a sudden, you just see the people without, right. without uh, those... Um, those walls that they build up, you know, um, they're broken down and you see only the people that you can show that unconditional love. And afterwards, you, you learn what that person voted for Trump, what that person voted for Hillary. Oh, my God. And I shared bread with them. But it's too late. You already have found out, hey, they're actually nice people. OK, right. So you, you can love those people, even though you don't like the ideology. Um, of course, it's such a simple ideology. It's a simple concept, right? I mean, it's just it's just basic, and and these these ideologies and these these differences, politics, whatever, drive people where you know where they'll want to kill each other or or hate each other or believe that they hate each other, and and it just it brings me back to something I, uh, you know, when you were discussing that, I thought about many, many years ago when I was in the movement and it had gotten to the point where members of my family were, they wouldn't talk to me because I was pushing the ideology on them and, and that sort of thing. And we came to an understanding many years ago, like, let's just not talk, talk politics because we can mm -hmm. just be a family. And, and it was fine going forward after that, you know, so it's the same concept, you know, it's like a little simple thing like that, you know, could sa save the family relationship. It, just like you said it's, it's always trickier in the family you know that famous thanksgiving situation you know <laughs> that in the family is maybe i do understand what you're saying but it works maybe in a family and maybe in a family you can do that and if you have like the person who's an extremist you know that would be the same like you're sitting at home and your brother-in-law just came back from syria from a terror camp oh let's just not talk about politics yeah, it's slightly a little bit different because you're talking well, about extremism. Extremism is slightly different. If your brother-in-law is a, a neo-Nazi or just came back from a terror camp, you know what I mean? So then you do. Then you have to technically do the same thing, you know? So in a family, it's always tricky. But if we talk about when it's not a family relationship, there are certain things that you can't leave unchecked. Um, but it has to be clear, okay. I respect you as a person. This is what Daryl Davis is a great, great uh, um, example for that. Or if I mention another famous name, Dia Khan, yeah. who, who made no secret 
part of the fact that she despised your ideology. Mm-hmm. And Daryl does the same thing. He will say, he's a black man, you know? And Dia, she's a, she's a Muslim, you know, a non-white Muslim. So, of course not. But they all respected you as people and showed you unconditional love and compassion. But told you at the same time, hey, but I don't agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think that is wrong. And you talked about it. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why you were receptive to that was because they showed you respect. Exactly. And And those two individuals were the two of the people that helped got, get to me. Daryl Daryl yeah, and Dee so, are the, the two people that really got to me that really helped me to get out, you know, so but go ahead, Acacia. I was just going to say, I mean, like you're saying, TM, like to have empathy and compassion and to respect somebody as a human being does not mean that you don't call them out on things and you don't put it in check and you don't say that, oh, well, you know, I love you as a human being. I think what you're doing and then neglect to say that you know i think what you're doing is wrong by all means absolutely you know it's everybody needs accountability um i mean there's a thing of personal accountability but it's also you know if i care about you as a human being and if i have compassion for you and if i think that what you are doing is wrong it's hurtful and it's going to lead down a really wrong path and that you're hurting other people, then by all means, I am going to call you out on it. Just like I know you do TM and I know you do Jeff, like, you know, because that's what you do when you care about somebody is you don't leave it unchecked. To leave it unchecked would be not to care. Right. Right, but it's always how you do it. Showing the respect to, to people as a person is just important at any time of their stage in their conversion from being out of the movement to wherever they want to be in their new life. This is important. You can be wherever you want to be in their new life. You don't have to be there. You don't have to be there just because somebody's telling you to. Um, and this is so important to show just that compassion because if I show that compassion to somebody when he contacts me just to get out at that moment, but I don't show that compassion to that same person after five years just because somebody goes backwards in the head. Well, what's what's the point? I mean, we all have, every former has PTSD too, you know, and sometimes things overcome you. There's a famous story of a friend, he's also a former, and he went to a Buddhist meditation retreat and was meditating all of a sudden, he says, a brutal attack and the warrior with a sword comes up in his head. It's like, dang, <laughs> you know, and it was after years, you know, and when all of a sudden it just comes up and you remember that song at the moment when you're about to meditate. That doesn't mean you're back in the movement or whatever. It doesn't mean you just remember those things that they were part of our lives. In your case, 25 years, in my case, 15 years. And, and sometimes you also have to do research, especially when you're active. And then preventing extremism or getting people out. Yes, you sometimes listen to that music because I that was that guy, whatever. It comes up at some point. And in my case, I was a musician. I have to listen to the crap because some journalist wants that music or whatever, or even people I worked with said, I want to listen to that. I said, I don't want to. But then you have to get it out, you know, and they listen to it and you're like, oh my God, this is 
We just you know, that we talked about that once before too about the PTSD and sometimes seeing things like you had told me uh, um, about. I think it was going. I don't know if it was a synagogue or where, but you were saying you were seeing swastikas in the tiles and and things like that. Remember? Oh, right? yeah, that was. Uh, I work with the Simon Mission Thought Center very closely, and they have uh, the East Coast office is in New York, on Broadway. And the first time I've been there, I walk up there, the elevator with a with a East uh, Coast director, Michael Cohn. I'm going up there. You get out of the elevator, and the floor has some kind some kind of mosaic, and it's actually just a Roman pattern. It's woven, but it's swastikas. Very, it's right angle swastikas. They just go all the way down on both sides. And I walk there and said, Michael. Because he's, he's, he's a modern Orthodox Jew. He wears his kippah all day long. I said, Michael, have you never seen this? He says, what? I said, every day, you as a Jew, walking to the office of the Samuel Wiesen Thought Center, you walk here over the swastikas? And he looked and said, damn. He said, no, he never seen it. He's never noticed it. It was just a pattern to him. So, but this is the PTSD people like me are dealing with. We see it everywhere. My wife bought floor tiles. When we moved six months ago, a couple of months prior to that, we had to change the floor, bought floor tiles, and she just saw one tile and she put it out and sent me a photo and said, I'm so glad we're moving out. She said, why? I said, that's like I see 50 swastikas on the floor. When I pointed it out, it was just like, like wood that was just in a certain way. But when I pointed it out, she was like, ah, I can see it too. But she didn't see it until I pointed it out. And she's got a little bit of feeling for that because now she's looking for swastikas too. She's <laughs> never been in the movement, but she picked up the PTSD, I believe. And she's like, yeah, I can see where you see that all the time, you know? But if you go to Walmart and, and you wonder, what idiot made this $14.88? Why? You know, and stuff like that. And it bothers you. Two famous examples in my case, too. There was a club in Memphis and it had a big 88 in front of it, like a spray paint or whatever graffiti. And I believe my wife was it. She took a photo of me, really good photo. But the background, you could see the 88. She wanted to put it on Facebook. And I was like, that was like 2013, 14, when even German media was very, looking very critical at me. And doubting if I was out, stuff like that. I said, you can't put that on Facebook. I said, that graffiti was probably a Dale Earnhardt or something. No, it was probably NASCAR related. It was the car number. But uh, in my case, in Germany, TMP uh, is not out. There's the photo with 88 in the background. And that's a PDST or another one, too, actually. Um, I used to shoot fireworks in 2016. We went to a black Baptist church, all black, and me and another guy, a technician, were the only white people with flame effects, fireworks, and all that stuff. And I was thinking, okay, former European clan leaders making flames in the black church. What if something goes wrong? Who will believe that this wasn't, that this was just an accident? Well, last year we shot fireworks for the Tennessee Titans. Big game, flames on the field. It was a national news because one of the flame machines was faulty and burned part of the field. And 
I didn't think anything about it. I had put pictures on Facebook because the team ran just past us and everything, which is, of course, cool and everything. You know, you're proud of working with them, put it on Facebook. Uh, but then I realized, man, it's also the anniversary of the Birmingham church bombing. And the company I'm working with just burned a flame machine on that field on that day. Don't believe how fast I was going to Facebook deleting my posts that were working there. Just because of the PTSD, what people could think and maybe make a connection. RTM is working that. Anniversary, Birmingham church bombing, make a nice fire would be good, huh? It was, and nobody probably, else, nobody else would have thought that. No one would yeah, have thought that. But that's your PTSD that that would say, "Look, they'll probably think I did it on purpose or something like that." Because that's right. That had no substance, of course. But that fear is there, and I talk to people like nobody would think that. Right. So no, but the fear is there, and I'm out for 18 years, and that fear is still there. I think it will never go away. This is also something that is important to work on things like that with farmers. So it is when we talk, like you work you work with farmers, I work with farmers. There's a lot of groups out there that work with farmers, uh, like Life After Hate, they do really great work. I worked with them for a while. Um, there's other individuals I work with and still work. We work with our Erasing the Hate Tattoo campaign where we cover up tattoo hate tattoos for free. It's a lot of individual uh, shops who joined the campaign over the years. It's it became its own movement, actually very individual, and um, working with all these formers, there's so many facets there that we have to consider. Yeah. And of course, we talked about politics, and it, I think that's one of the most tricky things in the last couple of years, more than ever, and in the next couple of years. Really, no matter who wins the election, because I'm honest, no matter where I stand politically, I don't think how this country is divided, that it changes anything no matter who wins the election. It will stay because the base on both sides will keep their positions no matter who wins. And um, the one side will blame the other for whatever who wins. And this, this is a problem. This is why we also have to share the compassion to people who vote different. Say, okay, I may not agree with that. I may not agree with this. But hey, we as people, we need to talk we need to respect each other's people and this is very important and especially when it comes to forms work and being professional sometimes means okay stick back with your political opinions because um and, and i've seen that a lot that this is not not just what i said what i've seen sometimes with tweets where i thought might be problematic with jeff posts i see that with a lot of forms that do that, that come out and then they're very far right still and they post something. And of course, from, for people that are out for 20 years and think about these things completely different, and forms will see that the longer you're out, you, you um, reflect in a different way. I guarantee you reflect on things different now than you did a year ago, completely different. For sure. You probably let things go. You are more accepting these people, even these people, and that will be different in a year too. I guarantee that. All formers have this process, even formers who already help other formers. And there it's important to look, okay, what does a former do online? How do they present themselves? And so it doesn't look, oh, are they maybe form the whole organization or whatever? I heard that before too, that some formers were uh, together and, and, and they were like, oh, there's two or three 
they post certain stuff. Are they forming a new organization? You know? So um, this is where people like you and me and every other former who knows formers, who works with formers, that get approached by people. Because I, I know formers that they don't want to work with formers or with, with people getting out of the movement because they have their lives, but they're known. And sometimes there's somebody who just approaches them. That, that's what happened to me. 2015, when I was outed here in the U.S. as a former, I didn't particularly like that first. Um, and I never thought in getting into into the sort of, of fields to help others leave extremist groups. It just happened because people saw me in the media, they saw me in the big newspapers, and all of a sudden I got messages in on Facebook. Hey, I want to get out. And I remember you back then. I was like, just now there was a TV uh, piece in Germany and I got messages. Hey, I still have your CD somewhere in the basement or whatever, you know, and stuff like that. And either people ask for help or tell me they got out then and then. So of course you start talking to them because there's a personal relationship. That's, that's kind of how I got started too with the Beyond Barriers thing is we had so many people that were reaching out is as they were asking for help and and things like that and at first you know i was just talking to them and and that, yeah. and you know hey i needed some help and and we we got a lot of people you know reaching out so we figured you know this is this is the way to do it you know we can uh make uh lemonades out of lemon take uh, excuse me i can't even think make uh lemons into lemonade you know take a bad situation yeah. into something good by helping others so um, you know, that's what, that's what we do. Same thing. And, and I never say I, I reinvented the wheel because I'm not the first one doing that. You're not the first one doing that. There's like, if you, if you really want to take it very particular, then Daryl Davis is probably the first one who ever did some sort of exit work because <laughs> he started in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. But other than that, exit Sweden was the very first one. Then exit Germany, a group, uh, an organization I work, work closely with still today was the it's the second oldest exit group they 20 years now they helped over 750 people getting out and then you have groups here in the u.s life after hate is working since 2011 you know and all these groups have just really they're all connected and 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 reformers all know each other even though some stand further left some stand further right but this is important that we work with groups when i don't have a certain resource well, then I will send them, of course, somewhere else and send them, say, go to Life After Hate, for example, because they have really lots of good resources that I may not have. Well, some have sent people to me for the tattoo campaign because I have these shops. Um, now they don't have to come to me anymore. They're all over the media, so it's, it makes it easier. But I was the first one starting with that. So they sent them to me, so it was always giving and taken. Again, I didn't reinvented wheel i don't say i'm doing better or worse or whatever um i'm just one wheel in a big machine that's out there that is working with farmers and uh it's just important that people actually help each other there uh, and share these resources because it's otherwise it would be the same in fighting that we had in the movement and there's there's no point we were trying to do something for the good and I don't care if that is a different organization. And I also don't care if that organization doesn't like that organization. If an individual needs help, 
that is way more important than the feud between people, organizations, or whatever, because exactly. it's about a person, a human being that needs needs help, and this is where we have to help. And we, had, we saw those problems in the movement, you know, where all the groups or so many of the groups were fighting with each other and things like that. And, and, you know, we just, we should not engage in that now. And, and, um, you know, there's a number of people that I simply, you know, will not, uh, talk with because they, they want to engage in that sort of thing and that behavior, um, like when they were in the movement, you know, so, um, you know, I, I know with beyond barriers, we'll work with anybody. You know, and that's 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 our stance on things. And as long as as long as they're not casting stones in our direction, you know, there's no reason not, you know, we're trying to help people. You know, that's, you know, just like you said, that's what we need to do. You know, I want to I want to get your opinion on TM is um, a lot of people and it's it's a pretty popular topic in the media right now, too. Um, and I get a lot of people asking about this too, is like white guilt and, uh, and that, and that sort of thing. And what's your, what's your take on that as far as the whole, uh, white guilt, uh, deal? Um, we, we could talk about this for five, five hours now. <laughs> let's not, I love, let's not do that. <laughs> I, I love to talk about this topic to all kinds of people. Um, and I talk about the topic to white people and also to black people. Um, I think white guilt is nonsense and shouldn't exist. Um, I do believe that white privilege exists, but not in the way that, that many people think, oh, I had to work all my life long. I never got anything for free. So this is not what I mean when I talk about white, white privilege. White privilege is if I drive with my Mustang and do 119, I get pulled over, that I didn't go to prison, but the black guy 99% would have. That if I go to a store and walk through there, the detective or whatever, or the investigator is not watching me, but probably the, the black guy. No, these are things. That's just certain things. They're stereotypical that create a white privilege. It comes from stereotypes, and this is what systemic racism means. What many people don't understand, they say, no, there's no racism. I don't know anybody who hates black people. So, well, systemic racism means something, something different. And you have the same... Um, I think white guilt is the problem or is the main problem that a lot of white people don't want to admit that there's white privilege and that there's systemic racism because that would mean to them they would have to feel guilty, they have to be ashamed and they're responsible for slavery, for segregation and whatever. Um, I don't know where it came from. Um, it, came from white people for sure that, that, that told other white people you have to do that. It was not white people that told white people, you're guilty, you're guilty. There was other white people who told other white people, you're guilty, you're guilty. Well, guess what? Even though that's like when I told white people, you've got it. I said, what? I said, well, white privilege. No, no. I said, yeah, I mean, it sticks on you like poop. You can't even wash it off. It's not even your fault. You don't have to feel guilty you don't have to be ashamed because it didn't chose it. It's like a black person didn't chose that they're black either. You don't have to feel guilty. And no, you don't have to apologize because you're white either. Nor has the black guy to apologize because they're black. It's, it's complete nonsense. So whoever wants you to, make, to, to believe that, it's, it's nonsense. And I had an interesting talk. Again, I live in a predominantly black area. And we just opened up a shop, a shop and a cultural center, which is multiracial and multicultural. Um, so most of our best friends are black now. 
And um, I talked to the president of the NAACP just um, I don't know, two months ago. And I talked to him, what do you think about white guilt? Do you think people should be guilty for all this stuff, white people? They haven't been around. So because I have a, every personal stance on that because being from Germany originally, and that was always in the 80s. That was just the second generation, second, just the third generation after the war, when people was like, no, you, have, you are responsible for the Holocaust. You have to feel guilty and ashamed. Hell, I wasn't there, right? Um, like a lot of white people here. I wasn't there during segregation. I wasn't there during slavery. I didn't do it. It's my granddaddy may have, you know, of course nobody wants to admit his granddaddy was maybe owned slaves. So yes, most white people participated in segregation in the, in the 1960s. It, it's true. It is what it is. And yes, if you're white, if you're from the South, there's a great possibility that your granddaddy held up a sign and said something with the N-word. Great possibility. Was it okay? No. Do you have to be ashamed? Well, probably you are because it was your granddaddy, you know? But no, you didn't do it. Don't feel ashamed and guilty for yourself. Like Germans, and that worked in Germany pretty good that there's a new awareness. No, you don't have to be guilty and ashamed for what happened then. But you have a responsibility that it must never happen again. This is the same thing here. What I tell other black people, I said, if you talk to white people, make that clear that you don't think the white person has to feel guilty. It's about a responsibility, what we make out of the future because of this nation's history. Of course, this nation's history. Yes, it was built on the back of non-whites. It is what it is. It was built on white supremacy. It is what it is. I mean, we, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. That's not the fault of anybody who's alive today. But we can change that. We can change inequalities and make it really equal. But it doesn't work with a white guilt complex. It doesn't work with a black guilt complex either. Right. But this is my stance on white guilt. It is nonsense, guilt, and shame are toxic in all forms. Guilt and shame are toxic in all forms, you know? And this is just, it has to be clear, very clear. And this is where, when somebody comes up with a white guilt stuff, I tell, I tell them, that's how you, you will never change anybody with that. And white people will only get defensive if you throw that at them for a good reason. Nobody wants to feel guilty for something they haven't chosen. Exactly. No, well said, well said. I agree with you 100% on that. That was, that was fantastic. Thanks for uh, explaining that because that, that is a question I get quite a bit too from, from people that are coming out. You know, they want to know, you know, where, where we stand on that sort of thing. And, and most people, I think, do, do see that it's wrong, but I think there's some elements in society now that, that uh, want to embrace this sort of thing and they think it's good. And I personally believe that, <clears throat> you know, any type of thing like that, I think it can cause more racism when you start heaping things on people. Like we have a past, we were in the movement, you know, we have things that I, I feel like, you know, that, that we should feel sorry for and, and uh, um, you know, that we don't take pride in, but. Um, you well, know. you say you're feeling sorry. No, I can't feel sorry for, for black people. I can't feel sorry for what happened. But I, that feeling, being sorry and apologizing are two different things. I can't feel sorry, that's sorrow, because I don't like what happened to them. I don't like what happened 
uh, to their ancestors. I don't like how it still affects them today. So no, no, that's so not that's not what I meant. I mean, I, I think we can agree on that. I meant us personally being the the hate and stuff that we put out. That yeah. I feel sorry for doing that. I feel so. I I feel like I would have rather have not done that. You know, if I knew what I knew now, right. that's what I meant. Not not in the sense of. Uh, you know, yes, of course, you know, I mean, black people had a heck of a time in this country and, and, uh, you know, but we personally, um, weren't the ones that, that did that. So I, I think you covered it really well. And I, I think that really summed it up. <laughs> TM, is there anything you want to, uh, plug on the way out the door? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you so, for, um, I'm for being open, open to all of my thoughts. When I say all of my thoughts, and we I mean all of my thoughts, because I'm I'm always very open. I'm sometimes harsh with my thoughts, um, but I think that's very important. Um, and just just a signal out there to everybody who's thinking about leaving the movement: um, listen to this episode maybe twice. Um, again. You don't have to become a communist. You don't have to marry a black woman. You don't have to convert to Judaism or whatever. You don't have to write for Biden. You don't have to write for Trump. But you can. And this is the nice thing. You can choose what you want when you get out. You have the burden off your shoulders that you have to do this. You have to do this. The fact is, no, you don't. You don't have to hate anymore. You just have to. And this is, hating is easy, but it's eating you up. It is hard in the long run. It is consuming. It's diabolic. Loving is hard. Loving somebody that you maybe don't like. You know what I mean? Loving, liking somebody is different. Loving somebody who you don't like. That is the hard part, but it is very rewarding, lasting. And that's what makes you really happy. And there's nothing wrong with it. And that, that doesn't mean the world goes down the drain. This doesn't mean the white race stops to exist and whatever. No, it won't. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to get out and ha start hating white people. Don't believe all that nonsense that people tell you. It's just not true. You are the master of your own thoughts and feelings and emotions, and only you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, TM. And you've been an incredible support to me since I've been out of the movement. And I thank you so much for that. And, and you're a good example to, to everyone. And, and uh, you know, we support you in the work that you do and, and keep up all the wonderful things that you're doing out there. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, TM, for coming on. And uh, before we forget again, like and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you next week.